and welcome to the alternate timeline. This bonus episode is a little later than usual because I've been kind of sick this week. Uh, it's not COVID. I've just been kind of like feeling funk. Um, anyway, uh, today we're going to talk about last week's episode, which was all about alternative economic models. And I will confess to you, bonus podcast listeners, <laughs> um, that I was really nervous to put this particular episode out um, for a couple different reasons. First, economics is definitely not something that is in my wheelhouse. It's not a subject that I studied in school or that I've read a lot about. Um, second, you know, we're talking about some sort of controversial stuff in the episode. Third, uh, pretty much all of the sources that we initially wanted to interview for this episode were either out of town or unavailable. Um, the people that we did get were amazing and they were, they were great, really helpful, but it was just sort of a scramble to actually get people for the episode. Um, and the final reason that I was kind of nervous is that, Whenever I mention on the show the idea that capitalism might not be the best system for the future, I invariably get a handful of sort of angry emails from people who are really annoyed that I would raise that idea or have that opinion. Um, and despite being a public-facing journalist for over 10 years now, um, I am still a human being who gets sort of nervous when people send me very aggressive emails telling me that I am wrong about something. Um I do try really hard to get things right and to do my research and to present evidence for what I'm saying on the show. I definitely don't always get everything right. And in many ways, when it comes to this question of like what we should do in the future when it comes to these really vast economic and political systems, there's probably no like one correct answer. Um, but no matter what, there are people who still like to send mean emails when you say something that they disagree with, particularly around capitalism, it seems. And I'm not I mean, totally sure why. I have some guesses. But anyway, I was nervous to put the episode out. Um, the episode also was running late because of the aforementioned problems with booking interviews. And so it was just kind of a scramble at the end. And I was like, ah. Um, but it's out now, obviously. And I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that it um, made you think about things a little differently. Uh, I definitely don't have, like, all of the answers for what we should do on some of these things. Um, I don't have, like, a foolproof global economic plan. But I do hope that it made you um, maybe think about the world a little bit differently or consider more options or um, maybe even like seek out some of your mutual aid groups, um, stuff like that. And that's always the goal with Flash Forward. It's not really to tell you like the correct future or the correct answer, but to maybe get you thinking about some of these questions in a new way. So we didn't wind up cutting a lot of stuff from the episode, um, but I do have a couple of things to share with you on this bonus podcast. So the first one's a little weird, but I did fall down a little bit of a rabbit hole on alligators and tortoises while working on this. Oh, so let me explain. Um, in our interview, Alana Strauss, who talked about the myth of the barter economy, said this. You know, we're communities, right? We're we're not we're not alligators, you know, like we're, we're really like community based species. There are some species that aren't, but we're not that. Now, later that day, Alana sent me an email saying, quote, I just looked it up. Apparently, alligators are actually pretty social, too. The desert tortoise would have been a better example of a non-communal animal. And so, of course, that set me down a whole research hole trying to learn more about alligator social behavior. Um, and it's true. Alligators actually live in little communities. Uh, when they're younger, they tend to have bigger social groups to help keep each other safe. And as they get older and bigger, those groups tend to get smaller and more close-knit, um, which actually kind of sounds a lot like humans. <laughs> and some crocodiles, and alligators and crocodiles are not the same, but they're very similar, um, have even demonstrated play behavior. So this study comes from the Smithsonian National Zoo. Um, 
and it's in Cuban crocodiles. And the discovery actually happened by accident. So I love the story. So the story goes that the zookeeper was trying to train the crocodiles to each go to a specific spot that would be like their spot to go to for training. And so that would be really helpful for things like veterinary care if you need to like look at one by itself and be like, go to your spot. Um, And so he was trying to train these crocodiles to do this. And so they put out three cement blocks, one white one, one gray one, and one black one. And they sort of assigned each crocodile one of the blocks. And this weird thing started happening. Every morning they would come out and the black block would be in the pool. And every day they would like put it back to where it was supposed to be and even change its position in the exhibit and like put it all over the place. And no matter what, the next day they would come back and it would be in the pool again. Now, they never saw the blocks move, and they couldn't figure out what's going on until finally one day they came in and they caught the male crocodile holding the black block in its mouth, and he was using it to sink his head to the bottom of the pool and then, like, blow bubbles around it, uh, just, like, for fun. Um They don't know why he liked the black one the best. Uh, They actually couldn't find any significant, like, weight difference or temperature difference in the black one. He just liked the black block and decided that it would be fun to play with. Um, So I think that's very cool. I also learned that alligators and crocodiles are some of the most vocal reptiles that there are. Um, And this is something that shows up really early in written accounts of alligators written by colonists and settlers in the United States in the 1500s. So they talk about going to the South in the U.S. and seeing these huge groups of alligators and they make this roaring sound. Um, So male alligators will roar most in the breeding season, but both male and female alligators make this sound. It's often territorial. Here's what this sounds like when one alligator does it. And this is called a bellow. And in the wild, what often happens is that one alligator will start and the others will join in and they call this a chorus. And here is kind of what that sounds like, although this sound comes from captive alligators, not wild ones. settler accounts of alligators in the southern U.S. wrote about thousands and thousands of alligators making this sound in unison, which was probably incredibly terrifying. Okay, so what about desert tortoises? Are they truly solitary? And the answer is some of them are, but not all of them. There's a tortoise called the Agassizis desert tortoise, and they are very social. They'll share their little covered sites with other tortoises, usually establishing a hierarchy within the group. Um, Other desert tortoises only interact with one another when it's mating season and the males will fight with each other and like try to flip each other over. Um, And so even desert tortoises do interact with each other sometimes. So that made me wonder, like, what is the least social animal? And it turns out when you Google that, you get a lot of things that are not super helpful, um, including, like, what is the least social zodiac sign, which was not what I was asking. But um, I'm also not sure there's, like, a really great way to measure this or to compare animals in a way that is really scientific. But I will tell you, some of the answers that came up from the search were bears, 
black rhinoceros, platypus, platypi, skunks, leopards, moles, koalas, sloths, wolverine, wolverines, apparently wolverine is plural, um, and the spotted lionfish. But, I mean, like, there's probably some bizarre, like, snail creature living in the deep ocean that is less social than, like, a mole, right? Is sort of my thinking. And also, just to be extra pedantic here, <laughs> um, black rhinoceroses do interact with one another, first of all. Um, it's just hard for them to find each other because we've killed most of them. So, I don't know, like, are they the least social or are they just the most endangered? Which is very sad. Anyway, none of this has anything to do with gift economies, but it is a thing that I got interested in because of the research for this episode. So um, that's sort of what it's like to report, for me at least, to report a Flash Forward episode is that like somehow you wind up trying to figure out what the least social animal is. Anyway, let's get back to gift economies and economic questions a little bit. Um, So another thing that we cut was some examples of ways in which natural capital calculations can be done. So probably the most obvious example of this, the example that you might have heard before, is about bees. Um, And there's lots of different estimates about the economic value of bees. Julia found this one very funny quote from our article that says, quote, no bees send invoices, even though their pollination is estimated to be worth $176 billion a year. Um, Another statistic we found is that a 2005 study estimated that the price of the U.S.'s reliance on pesticides equals approximately $10 billion in environmental and social costs. Um, I didn't include these specific numbers or examples uh, because, like, frankly, I am not 100% convinced that these kinds of calculations make any sense. Um, I just don't know how you quantify something like the environmental and social costs of, say, pesticides. Um, because when you start to think about how you would do that, it raises some really big questions around like what kind of impacts and costs count, whose suffering here matters, does it include the economic and social costs of, say, undocumented folks who bear the brunt of these chemicals, along with being marginalized and harassed for, say, their citizenship status? Like, how do you put a price on that? I don't know that you can. And this is one of my big critiques of this idea of natural capital is like, it's trying to put a number on something that feels uncalculatable. Uncal- incal- incalculable? Is that a word? We'll find out. Let's look it up right now. Incalculable. Is that a word? Survey says, yes. Excellent. It is a word. Okay. Um Anyway, it feels like this is one of those situations where people really want a number or a super clear, specific answer from science, technology, math, when in reality, it's just like a lot more complicated than that. And one specific dollar value just doesn't really make sense here. Um, A side note, I had to take an environmental economics class when I was in college, and I think I failed it because I made this exact argument when I was being asked to like put dollar values on things like the forest. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I hate this like a lot. And uh, I didn't do very well in that class um, for because I objected to the premise of the course, I guess, which is not a thing you're allowed to do when you're undergraduate. Anyway. Okay. Um, the other thing that we got was a little bit of history about the term mutual aid and where it comes from and a little bit of like sort of the history of anarchism. Um, A lot of people credit uh, an anarchist philosopher named Peter Kropotkin with coming up with the term mutual aid. Um, Obviously, the practice is very old and has been around for a lot longer than him. And I think it's probably more accurate to say that um, Kropotkin 
popularized the term mutual aid as opposed to came up with it. Um, He also interestingly argued that cooperation and not competition was the driving mechanism behind evolution, which is a whole other debate that we will not get into right now. Um, And then the last thing that I wanted to share was um, three tips from Dean Spade about getting involved in your local mutual aid groups. I think this is actually really useful. Um, So if you are looking into getting involved and you're nervous or you're like not sure what to expect, he had these three really great pieces of advice. Number one, recognize that organizers and participants um, in these mutual aid groups are imperfect people just like you and that it's not going to be like this instant utopia. Going in with like some humility, I think is really essential, especially for people who are consuming a lot of really great media about radical ideas, but haven't put their toes in yet. Yeah. Like when you get there, people are going to use different words. They're going to, you know, just how to be like, um, humble about engaging, especially since like all of these groups tend to be like very cross age group, cross class. Like you want to just be open to people being where they're at and share what you, what you know and care about, but not go in just like looking to be like, you know, wounded and angry about how it's not exactly like, you know, what's inside your head. Number two, it might take a little bit of digging and research to find the groups working near you. So don't just like quit after the first Google search. I think that um, what's useful is to kind of get a lay of land first. Like what is going on around where I live or around things I care about? So like, oh, I'm really interested in supporting people in prison. What kind of prison letter writing projects already exist? Are there people who are looking for support? Is this a chapter-based model? Could I start my own in our town? Oh, we don't have a chapter of Black and Pink or we don't, you know, um, or, you know, just kind of what's out there. Um, Or like in my region, like, okay, I'm really interested in new food justice stuff. I'm seeing there's a lot more stuff around supporting people in homeless encampments, whatever. Go get involved in that stuff and then find out from those people if there's like, what are the food justice elements of this? Or are there food justice programs I didn't know about? Because a lot of mutual aid groups are really, really like, you know, scrappy, may not have a social media presence, um, may not have, may not be easy to find. So you find what is the easiest to find. You can go to like mutualaidhub.org or it's going down. Some of these websites that have lots of lists of mutual aid projects, what's the closest thing to where I am and how can I use that to meet more people who are doing this stuff? And what you find is when you get there, you're like, oh, I'm, I met with the people who are enjoying the stuff that's going on at the um, encampment of unhoused people. But then it turns out like a bunch of people there are doing all of this radical environment stuff. And then it turns out there's this, like all these people from the anti-violence movement are there. So then I like learned and maybe they're all really mobilized around this in Canada right now because the city's trying to sweep it. But I learned about like the broader network of things that have gone on and are going on and sometimes pop up in my region. And I can be like, oh, I really want to fit in here or there. And number three is be open to doing work that you might not have thought of. It's like, you don't want to go in and be like, I do graphic design. All I can do is graphic design. All I can offer anyone is graphic design. Like, it's like, okay, that's awesome. If you like know how to do social media or graphic design, or you really love cooking, but also like, what am I willing to learn to do that? I don't know how to do like, maybe they need babysitters. Like, you know, I'm going to be a babysitter that I'm going to find out how to babysit. Like, you know, just um, being like really open to what you're being called to do is just a great way to build relationships and to show your dedication less to like your ego and role and more to like what is of use right now? Does somebody basically need me to like stay, stay with them at the hospital because they're scared? Like what is, what do we need? Okay. That is all that we cut from that episode. Um, a couple of other things. We did pick the books for the next two book club months. So for September, we're reading Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. For October, we're reading An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. We're going to discuss those in Slack as always. Um, Huge thanks to the folks who have taken on moderating duties for the books um, and everybody who's participated in the Slack. If you have been on the fence about joining, um, please do check it out. It's really fun and people share pictures of their pets. And I always like to see all of you and I try to chime in when I can um, and say hello. Um, 
There's one other like flash forward behind the scenes thing that I want to say. And then I have an exciting like promo for you about another project I'm working on. But um, flash forward related. So we have nine episodes left in the flash forward season. And after that, we will do the usual winter break for the show. We always do this. We sort of do, you know, a year and then I'll usually take a break December, January, February, and then we'll be back in March is kind of the usual way it goes. Um, I am thinking about making some like big changes to the show next year. Um, this probably won't come as a huge surprise to those of you who have been listening to the bonus podcast or reading the newsletters or kind of like following along for a little while. Um, I do like to experiment with the show and mix things up. And I also sort of have been thinking a lot about kind of what the future of the show is. Um, it's been a really, really fun, great run of seven seasons making these regular episodes of Flash Forward. Um, I feel incredibly lucky to have made it to seven seasons. Most indie podcasts do not get to do this much work. Um, and I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to do that. Um, and at the same time, I'm also kind of wondering like what's next and what the next kind of era of the show looks like, um, what I can do to kind of mix it up or to try and, you know, change things up to feel like injecting a little bit more like fresh excitement, um, for me personally, uh, into the show. Um, and I will tell you right now that it probably won't continue to be a biweekly or even monthly episodic thing the way that it has been thus far. Um, even with Julia's help, uh, and Julia has been incredible. Uh, they're the best. That pace is still really hard and I'm sort of feeling a little bit burned out, a little bit antsy to like mix it up a little bit, try and do something else. So, no big decisions have been made yet about what that looks like exactly. I have some ideas. Um, Julia and I are brainstorming a bunch of stuff. And the show will not, like, disappear completely. We'll be around. We'll be doing stuff. It just probably won't look like kind of an every other week cadence um, in the exact same format that you've come to expect. Um, so I just want to, like, start that conversation, let you all know a little bit before everyone else, obviously, because you're my core people, um, that in the next couple of months, you'll probably start hearing me talk a little bit about some of these changes, maybe ask some questions of you about like what works and what doesn't. Um, and there will probably be corresponding changes to the Patreon or memberful uh, setup. Um, and I, obviously, you'll be the first people to find out about all of that once I figure out what we're going to do. <laughs> so yeah, I just wanted to like start seeding that. I was telling someone about this and I was like, I need to tell the patrons and the like members and everything because I need to start chumming the waters. And they were like, that's not the phrase that you mean. So I'm not trying to chum the waters. I am trying to kind of plant the seed. That's the that's the better way to say it. Um, so that way it's not a huge, huge surprise uh, later on. So um, as always, I am incredibly grateful for your support of the show. Without patrons and time travelers, this show would truly not exist. I know I say that a lot, but it's like 100% true. Um, I can only do this kind of weird work because I have your support. No other like big network wants to buy Flash Forward, um, which is fine. I mean, like, you know, I like owning my own work, but um, it would also be nice to have a little more money. Um, anyway, I can only dream of other versions of the show because I know that you folks care about this work and will probably, hopefully not all flee the minute something changes. Um, so I just want to let you know. Okay. The last thing that I wanted to do on this bonus episode is plug another show that I've been working on. I know I've been cheating on Flash Forward with another show, and I've hinted at this in past episodes that there are these secret projects that I can't tell you about yet. Um, and now I can finally tell you about one of them. Um, it is a, a new Audible original show called Say You're Sorry. Um, 
It is a podcast about public apologies. So sort of looking at nine different public apologies, talking about why they work or don't work, the stories behind them. And we cover everything from YouTube apologies to sexual harassment to Cold War experiments that Bill Clinton had to apologize for, um, all different kinds of apologies. And hopefully the podcast offers a new way for you to think about what it means to say you're sorry. Um, I am really proud of this. It's my first time taking a show from someone else's kind of vague idea all the way through development, refining it, pitching it, selling it. And then I was the executive producer on it. So I am not the host of the show. Um, you'll hear two hosts if you listen. Um, I am the big boss in the background who pays everybody's bills and makes the ships run and gives my kind of big editorial feedback. Um, and of course, uh, I brought Julia Linus Goodman on as a producer because they're the best. And I try to get them to work on everything because they are truly just like so, so good. Um, so here's a little trailer for the show. It seems like every day there's a new apology in the news. Tonight on Capitol Hill, no sign of Al Franken. Today, he apologized. Academy Award-winning actor Morgan Freeman has apologized. Degenerous apologizing to more than 200 staffers in a video conference call, according to Variety. And a lot of us like to gawk at these often really bad apologies. I mean, it's kind of fun. But it's also weird to constantly see adults struggle to do something we teach to kindergartners. It seems like apologies aren't actually as easy as we think. I'm Lex Alptron. And I'm Suna Petros. And we've gotten obsessed with apologies. Like, deeply obsessed. And we want to take you on a journey through some of the public apologies we can't stop thinking about. The United States of America offers a sincere apology. I know I've let y'all down because I let myself down. I got an anonymous letter. Can you help us? I saw this notification where it was like, Ariana Grande has sent you a message. And I was like... Am I high? Oh my God, it was serendipity. It's like a schoolyard fight breaking out. Everybody was sued. And my dad came into my room and he said, Lacey, they're going to ruin you. I'm sorry might just be two words, but once you start digging, you realize that there is so much going on underneath the surface. So how are you feeling today about the apology you got from St. Paul's? Uh, duped. Clinton's apology was a joke to me. They couldn't care less about us. It's the if. I can't get past it. If I ever did that, if I ever did this, you did ever. You clearly did. We have never received an apology, as far as we are concerned. They need to say they're sorry. They need to apologize and take responsibility for this. People want to believe that the apology can make things right. You know, and that's one of the reasons why they're so dangerous, because people want them so bad. Okay, everybody can say sorry, but for what? And by understanding how apologies succeed and fail, we can understand so much about forgiveness, power, history, and change. It changed my complete perspective on on apologies. It flipped my life upside down. It was wild. You can find Say You're Sorry on Audible. So it is an Audible original, which does mean that it's behind a paywall. That is the reality of the thing. Um, But you can find out more about the show and subscribe to get it when it comes out on September 9th. There will be a link in the show notes to this bonus podcast. Um, Please do check it out. It would really mean a lot to me if you listened. 
Okay, that is all for the bonus podcast uh, stuff for this week. And then final thing, as always, we always end with a little secret. Um, I am really excited because I uh, the UC Berkeley Library is reopening. Um, so I live in Berkeley and I love nothing more than a university library because there are so many books that I would never find otherwise. Um, and so I get to go to the library tomorrow and I have my I have a printed out list of books from my WorldCat list um, of things I want to check out. And I was holding it the other day and um, my partner was like, how many books are on that list? And I was like, 36. <laughs> I have 36 books that I want to find at the Berkeley Library. Um, but I'm I'm think I'm only allowed to take out 25 books at a time. So um, we'll have to figure that out. But I'm really excited to go back to the library. Um, and I just can't wait. So that's my thing that I'm excited about this week. <laughs> um, okay, that's all for the bonus podcast. Uh, I, you'll hear us again soon. New episode of the show of the main show comes out on Tuesday of next week. It's a special one because Julia is hosting it. And it's based on an idea that they had. And I'm really excited for you to hear it. So um, I can't wait for that. So get excited with me and I will talk to you all soon. Okay. Bye.